I'd like to warn you about the explicit nature of the show, but I'll just hint that you know what you're in for, making this an implicit explicit warning. It's Thursday, February 4th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesky. You know, a lot of people are losing family members and friends to QAnon. And lost is the right verb because people begin chasing theories on the internet, spending more and more time online. They become remote, withdrawn, and then they're talking in a different language. They're obsessed with crazy ideas. It's like a kidnapping or a brainwashing. You hear stories like this about daughters, sons, parents, old friends. There's a whole Reddit board dedicated to strategies of getting people out of the clutches of QAnon. But now we seem to have found what is the only foolproof plan, 100% efficacy. It's a simple three-step process. To get out of QAnon, one, get elected to be a member of Congress, two, Keep up the bullshit while a member of Congress. Three, then in your fourth week on the job, when you're called out on it, get over 200 of your colleagues into a meeting and then announce you're no longer a member of QAnon. You've rejected QAnon. I'm not that asshole anymore. I thought I'd wait till now to tell you. Because that is what Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene did. And it worked like magic on the Republican caucus QAnon? What QAnon? Literally, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy didn't even recognize the name QAnon. I think it would be helpful if you could hear exactly what she told all of us, denouncing QAnon. I don't know if I say it right. I don't even know what it is. Um, Any from the shootings. She said she knew nothing about lasers or all the different things that have been brought up about her. Wait, who attacked us on 9-11? Alphonse Coda? Al Cooper? Al Quat? What's the name of those people? And wait, how am I supposed to be paying attention to this, to these threats on America? Literally, literally pretending not to know QAnon. Now, at this point, it's like if a Democrat on 10-11-01 were to give an interview and say, wait, Osama Ladadl? Ozzy Bin Little? Is that his name? I don't even know. I have no idea who that guy is. 1941, isolationist senator. Huh? Eptoff Hickler? Who? Eldor Pockler? What's his face? You know, the mustache guy. Sorry, I've heard you should never compare anyone to Hitler. So let's just change that one to 70s Cambodia. Pol Pan, Pill Pop, the Khmer Rude. Why should I be worried about Pol Push? <sighs> what can you say about this other than, oh my God. Now, to quote Marjorie Taylor Greene, no, wait, I shall not quote Marjorie Taylor Greene because her mask says censored and I wish to honor that sentiment. But let's examine the claim that she gave up her QAnon beliefs without telling anyone about it until she was called to the carpet. She gave up her beliefs before getting elected to Congress. So the part where she called Parkland and Sandy Hook and 9-11 hoaxes, she doesn't believe that anymore. She didn't tell anyone she doesn't believe that, but she doesn't believe that. Liking tweets calling for the murder of Nancy Pelosi, all in the past. Just raising questions about space lasers controlled by Jewish capitalists. Don't believe that anymore. Why would ever believing that call into question my wisdom and judgment? Okay, let's just look at what she's been saying in the present, the very recent present, the day after the attack on the Capitol. Tweet, the Antifa slash BLM terrorism funded on Act Blue rests with Democrat accomplices like Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Kamala Harris, AOC, Tim Kaine, and many more. Another tweet, Democrats, Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Kamala Harris, CNN, are responsible for inciting Antifa BLM terrorism, 
that burned down cities in 2020, two billion in damage, murders, lives ruined. Their support of violent insurrection should have consequences. Three days after the attacks on the Capitol, she quoted Alex Jones, blamed Atifa for the attack on the Capitol. Quote, Antifa was involved. Why is that being ignored? Why does the media always give Antifa a pass? Why do Democrats always give Antifa a pass? Since getting elected, God will no longer bless America because she has murdered over 62 million plus people in the most sacred of places, a mother's womb. And who can blame him? Going all Westboro Baptist Church over there. And she did tweet this to the chief operating officer of the Georgia Secretary of State. Morons like you are responsible for losing Georgia's two Republican Senate seats. You ran a November 3rd election that was stolen because you idiots at the SOS mailed out millions of absentee ballots to anyone and everyone while Georgia was an open state. Then you counted ballots on Dominion. Oh, she also tweeted to Mitt Romney, grow a pair. She introduced articles of impeachment against Joe Biden on January 21st, and she constantly refuses to be scanned or wanded at the House metal detector. Stripping her of her committee membership, meaning she would still get a full vote as a member of the U.S. Congress, but couldn't ask questions to witnesses while they are under oath, that is a small, small punishment. It's actually not a tough call. Expelling her from Congress, thus disenfranchising the voters of her district, that is a tough call, a tougher call at least. Republicans stripped Steve King of committee membership. He would say racist things. But a member of Congress who endorses her views, views so beyond the pale, and then makes the lamest of protestations of repentance, which we never knew about until the entire Republican caucus had to assemble to deal with the headache that she has become, that member should not be rewarded with anything beyond the bare requirements of the U.S. Constitution. But I know why Republicans are keeping her. They're set on defining their brand as one of intense niche appeal rather than widespread popularity. Now, I'm not comparing her or Republicans to the following organizations or companies, but it's a similar dynamic to why the NHL never really cracks down on fighting like all the other sports leagues have. It's why Ford has been loath up until very recently to fully experiment with electric pickup trucks. It's why some death metal bands resist having easy-to-hear lyrics. These brands are captured by their most impassioned fans, and also some who have decision-making power for these brands agree with the fans. But these fans demand that they remain hardcore at the expense of possible mainstream palatability. Add to the fact that the people inside the organization have question, reason to question if they will really ever appeal to people outside the tent. And third, there's kind of a thrill to snubbing your nose at outside forces trying to impose respectability on you. And we have the situation we have today with the Republicans. Marjorie Taylor Greene speaks to the id of most Republicans. A lot of them really would like to be able to say what she says, certainly to get the attention she gets. And a lot of Republicans actually really are appalled, but they fear they can't say so. They can't say what they want to say. So, Her critics are paralyzed. Her defenders are naturally the loudest voices in the room. And if anyone is caught in between these two competing feelings, well, they default to inertia. They fall in line with the party. They fall in line with the most important voices in the party. Donald Trump, the head of the party, pretty much. The titular head in the House, Kevin McCarthy. They listen to the megaphone of the party, Fox News. 
And it adds up to Marjorie Taylor Greene being okay with Republicans. And for normal Republicans, Republicans who are really actually appalled by this, it's just a big lift to endorse a punishment. It's easier to do nothing. For abnormal Republicans, it actually feels great to plant a flag and defy Democrats. And for Democrats and independents, it feels like abnormal has officially become the new normal when it comes to Republicans. On the show today, I delve into yet another controversy among newly elected female members of Congress, Nancy Mace and AOC. AOC, the old veteran in all of this, a study in incentivized miscommunication. But first, the coup in Myanmar brings with it many questions, and rather than ask them via walkie-talkie, I'm joined by an Asia expert who has tracked An Sang Suu Kyi's career from dissident to deposed. Jonah Blank, up next. Myanmar was, not, not even more than a decade ago, among the most repressive countries in the world. And who knows, in a month and a half, it might return to that exact state. There was officially, according to the U.S., a coup there. And what's interesting is that the Nobel Prize winner, who was a major political figure, was arrested, detained, charged with a walkie-talkie crime. But her Aung San Suu Kyi's reputation had suffered as she actually was faced with being a working politician as opposed to a figure, an object of praise and almost sainthood. Joining me now, and once again joining me after uh, too long of a layoff, is Jonah Blank, who is a senior political scientist at RAND and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and was for many years the policy director for South and Southeast Asia on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Jonah, hi, how are you? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You know, you're the kind of guy we don't tap when things are going well in Asia, do we? (laughs) So (laughs) I want to talk about Myanmar. And well, first of all, the latest is that Aung San Suu Kyi has been charged with a bizarre, I think a bizarre crime. This is all about walkie-talkie crimes. What's really going on there? Yeah, it is kind of bizarre. You think that if you're going to stage a coup, you really ought to do a little bit of preparation, get a better cover story. But in fairness, uh, back home in the U.S., uh, we're um, we're learning that we're not so good at staging coups ourselves. In Myanmar, they've got a little more practice. This is the third time that they have staged a coup, 1962, 1990, and now now. And uh, why did they charge Aung San Suu Kyi with <laughs> importing walkie-talkies? God only knows. There are plenty of other charges they could have applied equally trumped up, uh, but less ridiculous. Yeah. Maybe they're thinking, well, this is extremely easy to prove. And if she has a criminal record, she can't serve in government. It could be. I mean, what what they did before uh, to keep her from being president was to pass a, a law saying that if you have children who have citizenship in another country, which she does, then you can't be president. And that also is pretty uh, ridiculous. However, at least it's not the only country that does something like this. Possession of walkie-talkies is taking it to a new extreme. It could well be sort of getting Al Capone on uh, tax violations rather than on murder, but still, you'd think that they would try a little bit harder. Yeah, so this is a coup. We're calling it a coup because it is a coup, but the fact that the U.S. government 
is calling it a coup has special meaning. And what is that? It means essentially that U.S. assistance, uh, military and economic, has got to be uh, at least temporarily paused. And was there a question that it would be? Yes. Anytime that there is a coup, even if it's very clearly a coup, which this is, uh, we saw this, for example, in Egypt um, when General Sisi uh, took over power in a military coup from the Muslim Brotherhood government, and uh, the Obama administration really did not want to call this a coup. We've seen this in Thailand a number of times under both Democratic and Republican administrations, where there have been several coups in Thailand, and nobody really wanted to call it a coup because these were bloodless coups and things still operated relatively normally. So there's a lot of ingrained pressure in any administration to avoid calling it a coup. But in my view, the Biden administration was absolutely right to call it a coup because that's what it is. I want to ask you about the tenure of Aung San Suu Kyi while she was in power, if she actually was in full power. We'll get to that in a second. It is quite clear that she disappointed many, many hopeful international observers. She was called to account for the expulsion and the credibly alleged evidence of genocide of the Rohingya. Was she, so my question is, was this just a political reality of Myanmar that she had to take sides against this religious minority to secure her own power within the country? Or was she just maybe never the person that we thought she was to begin with? Um, I hate to say, but it's true. She never was the person that many of us, including me, thought she was. First time I went to Myanmar was in 1987 when the movement that would soon bring her to power was bubbling up. I remember when she was such an inspirational figure for people around the world. I've still got my Aung San Suu Kyi t-shirt from another trip to Myanmar. But the fact is that one can be a very credible, popular leader and still not be a hero when it comes to defense of minority rights. And she supported the ethno-nationalist program of the majority community. Uh, known as the Bamars. They're uh, an ethnic group who form about two-thirds of the population of Myanmar. And they, unfortunately, uh, it's pretty good politics in Myanmar to uh, support a pro-Bamar, anti-Rohingya policy. And Aung San Suu Kyi, by all accounts, was not only following the politically easy path, but also genuinely seemed to believe this stuff. Yeah, she wasn't pained. She wasn't aggrieved. We can't find too many instances where behind the scenes she was subtly mitigating what the government was officially doing to the Rohingya. Right. She wasn't even kind of trying to have it both ways of telling liberal Westerners, look, I really don't believe this, uh, you know, this really nasty uh, anti-Rohingya propaganda that I'm putting forward. I'm forced to do it because otherwise the military kick us out. No, she was basically, her line all along was, look, all this stuff you're hearing from the military, yeah, I'm down with this too. And it wasn't just her. It was also the most prominent figures uh, in sections of the Buddhist Sangha, the Buddhist uh, clergy were doing this as well. It's, sadly enough, it's, um, it's good politics. And to put it in American terms, 
we've seen our radical movements, uh, or certainly liberal movements, gain traction among the racial minority in the U.S. Um, and uh, the religious minority in the U.S. So it's not really unique to Myanmar. Was she, so my question is, was this just a political reality of Myanmar that she had to take sides against this religious minority to secure her own power within the country? Or was she just maybe never the person that we thought she was to begin with? Well, I, th- I would put a third category there uh, in that the issues that made her a pariah didn't right. really emerge during the years when she was an international heroine. Right. Uh, and in fact, the Rohingya supported her because they hated the junta also. They, some, of them, some of them would have, just as a number of other ethnic minorities did. Burma is one of the most diverse, uh, ethnically diverse countries in the world. There are, uh, by government accounts, there are 135 different ethnic groups in Myanmar. And uh, about a third of the population are comprised of ethnic minorities. So this is not just sort of some small uh, issue off to the sides. And uh, the biggest internal security threat for Myanmar, the reason that the, uh, the, that the army is actually claiming it has an emergency that it needs to be in charge about, is because of a lot of these long-running ethnic uh, minority insurgencies. But the Rohingya were not really one of them uh, during those years when Aung San Suu Kyi was in, uh, under house arrest. It had been an issue uh, for, you know, at least um, since independence, but not a, a bleeding issue the way that some of the other ethnic minorities had been. So I think that it wasn't really put before us, the fact that uh, she had rather bigoted views against uh, this ethnic group that mm-hmm. at the time was not really being particularly oppressed uh, compared with the general run of the population and other ethnic minorities that were suffering a great deal worse. But, you know, the truth is when you are an ethnic and religious minority in a country like Burma, life is just not going to be easy. But do you think that for that, just that group of people, just these hundreds of thousands of Rohingya people, uh, and Burma is a country of 50 million, but for the Rohingya, were things better under the junta and the military dictatorship than they were under Aung San Suu Kyi? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, phrase it like that because uh, the, the the time when they, when this really blew up for the Rohingya was uh, 2016 and particularly 2017, and until then uh, there had been uh, relatively con- constrained uh, repression, but it grew during the uh, during the 20th century, and. Some of the history of this is that this is a, a controversy that had been going on throughout Myanmar's independent history, but and actually even before that, even into British colonial times, uh, but it really got worse in the post 9-11 world. And this gets back to an issue that I think we, uh, we don't appreciate enough in the U.S. The things that U.S. politicians say resonate around the world. So just as this military coup that occurred in Monday morning, the the government, the, the, the junta, uh, the, the military uh, dictatorship used the same language that Donald Trump used as a justification. It claimed, it put forward baseless claims of electoral fraud and used that as an excuse 
to launch a coup d'etat against its own government. Um, it was drawing directly on the same rhetoric that we found in the U.S. In the same way, the rhetoric of the post-9-11 uh, political leadership in the U.S. was directly brought over to Myanmar and used first by members of the Buddhist clergy, uh, particularly uh, one cleric by the name of Uurantu, uh, who was an honorific. And, uh, and from there, it spread from the clergy to the military, which had been uh, carrying on campaigns against the Rohingya for a long time, um, and into the civilian realm of Aung San Suu Kyi and her party. So the same arguments, the same rhetoric, the same idea that Muslims can't be trusted, they're affiliated with Al-Qaeda, they're all terrorists, those exact same words and the same communal hatred was stirred up first during the years when the junta was in charge, and then it continued into the years of this blended civilian and military rule, because there never was a period when the civilians were completely in charge. Yeah. So did Aung San Suu Kyi not play politics well, or just totally putting aside the morality and what she did to religious minorities, mm. everything that we have been talking about? Did she misplay her hand? Or was the junta always more powerful than we gave it credit for? They never really went away, and it was very difficult situation. Um, both. She she misstepped because she has not really been a very adept politician. This was true even before the Rohingya became a uh, a key issue. She never had done the job of building her party. She hasn't really prepared a successor. She, uh, one of the real problems is that her party has won over 80% of the seats, but it still is so personalized in her. That's not because she's such a dominating figure and that everybody loves her so much. It's because she has kept out any other leadership from arising. And uh, that that's going to be a real problem for the whole project of democracy in Myanmar, because when you've got it personalized in one very flawed individual and a very flawed individual who's in her 70s, uh, what happens then when she's either legally barred from uh, power, uh, as she is going to be now, or perhaps just is no longer on the scene? She never really uh, got the whole idea of democracy. She was very good at leading a movement, not very good at institutionalizing democratic norms. So it does seem like what we're calling democracy, and there were, in fact, legitimate elections. They counted the vote accurately. She and her party were elected. But it does seem that her and their conception was always to replace or rebut this military dictatorship with something like a cult of personality. Maybe that's how she saw evening out the power and influence of this admittedly horrible government, military dictatorship, yeah. with becoming a would-be autocrat. And I do find that, and this goes back to when we started, when, when the USSR yeah. fell and when there was a broad change sweeping America, many in the West just said democracy good. But without the institutions and without the education of the people, without training about how to run a democracy, all we really had was elections. And, you know, 
Erdogan really does win elections, and Putin wins elections, I guess. He doesn't allow any opposition, but he's probably more popular than other politicians in Russia. So the idea of democracy in and of itself as the solution is really a flawed one. Well, I think that if we think of democracy purely in terms of elections, we're taking too small a view of it. It's not just who wins the most votes. It's also, is civil society society part of the program? Uh, is there a free press? Are there protections for minorities? Uh, are there basic freedoms that are guaranteed to all citizens? All of these are part of a democracy. Otherwise, it just becomes a matter of a referendum. After all, Kim Jong-un uh, wins his elections with 99.9% um, of the vote. Um, if there were a free vote in North Korea, chances are he'd win just because who else would anyone even have heard of? Right, um, and he does bring those anti-aircraft artillery guns that he used to kill his uncle to debate, so that helps. Well, exactly, but even but even if people even if people were free to vote, yeah, you're quite right. I think that if Putin were to allow a free election, he'd probably win just because he is quite popular. And because he has such control over over the press, over over every aspect of people's lives that uh, you can't just sort of march people in and say, OK, vote freely and everything is fine. We see this in the U.S. as well. Um, Florida has freely and fairly elected uh, Ron DeSantis as its governor and without bringing in all of the other aspects of democracy that are that are essential things like protection of minorities, things like protection of the democratic process. Uh, it's obviously, you know, not in any way comparable to the kind of anti-democratic uh, behavior that we see elsewhere, but we are seeing a deterioration of democratic norms in the U.S. that goes far beyond simply, can we hold elections where the credible winner is actually inaugurated? Yeah, so Anthony Blinken, who you know well, he has yeah, a choice. He was my staff director can, we were for, yeah, for eight years, yeah. I don't know. I'm sure you're texting him. You've been texting him over the last couple of days, but he has a choice. It's not much of a choice. You can't support the coup. Mm -hmm. You can't support the junta. But what? You just throw your lot, America's lot, behind Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, mm -hmm. a party that was hauled before international tribunals to answer for charges of genocide, and then what? Well, um, I, I won't speculate on what the Secretary of State is going to do. I will simply uh, say what I would um, what I would advise that uh, the U.S. government do, which is support not an individual, not a party, but a process. Support democracy. Demand that all of the people who have been arrested on trumped-up charges be released demand a return to the democratic process and the rule of law and all of the protections that go with democracy as well. So it's not a matter of supporting Aung San Suu Kyi. It's not a matter of supporting your process. It's uh, her party. It's a matter of supporting democracy writ large. Jonah Blank is a senior political analyst at the RAND Corporation. And for a dozen years, he was policy director for South and Southeast Asia on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Jonah Blank, thanks so much. And Jonah will be back, I think, next week to talk about another alleged, credibly alleged genocide of the Uyghurs and the United States policy towards that and China.
And now the spiel. At the beginning of the week, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez posted a long video on Instagram Live of her reflections and perceptions of the attack on the Capitol. In this video, she revealed that she, as a survivor of sexual assault, was particularly attuned to the very real threat that she and her colleagues faced that day. It is not an exaggeration to say that many, many members of the House were nearly assassinated. Um, It's just not an exaggeration to say that at all. Uh, We were very lucky um, that things happened within certain minutes that allowed members to escape the the House floor unharmed. Um, But many of us... um, nearly and narrowly escaped death. During the video, she talked about hearing a banging on her office door. And while the party turned out to be a Capitol Police officer, she worried that it could have been a rioter. Because, of course, as far as she knew, it could have been. Only the right, some elements of the right, have decided that it couldn't have been. Because Ocasio-Cortez's office is in the Cannon office building, not the Capitol proper. The complexes are attached by underground corridors, and if rioters could breach one, they could have breached the other. Also, to be clear, Ocasio-Cortez never said, nor do I think she meant to imply, that rioters literally were outside the door of her office. But several media outlets got that detail wrong. Newsweek wrote that, quote, Ocasio-Cortez said that rioters actually entered her office, forcing her to take refuge inside her bathroom after her legislative director, Geraldo Bonilla-Chavez, told her to hide, hide, run, and hide. And the Today Show also apparently took down a tweet that mischaracterized what AOC said. This prompted another representative, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, to weigh in. Mace, like AOC, is a charismatic young woman, not as young as AOC, but a first-term congresswoman. She utilizes media well, and she uses it to gain attention. Unlike AOC, she is a Republican, but one who, in just her first few weeks in Congress, has repudiated Donald Trump more than just about anyone short of the 10 House members who voted for impeachment. Here she is asked by Neil Cavuto on Fox if she holds Donald Trump responsible for the violence she lived through on January 6th. I do hold him responsible for much of what happened last Wednesday. I also believe that there were members in Congress, members of my own party, who also contributed to it. If you look at the rhetoric, uh, the transcripts, the, the speeches of the rallies, even leading up to that, I personally was concerned that Sunday night I had my kids up there and with me for my swearing in. And because of virtual school, because of COVID, they were supposed to be up there all week for me, with me. But because of the rhetoric I was seeing, um, the way things were being talked about online, I was worried about violence days beforehand. And I put my kids on the first plane home on Monday morning. And thank God I did, because uh, I, w- I would be beside myself if they witnessed what I witnessed on Wednesday. May said she didn't believe in impeachment, but... Flat out also said Republicans need to reject Donald Trump. But she is a Republican, and she was obviously ticked off at the attention AOC was getting for things that never happened, but things that AOC never claimed happened. So Mace put out a tweet, and this tweet screenshotted that Newsweek article I read and a New York Times tweet noting that media has been misreporting AOC's claims, and Mace's tweet said, AOC made clear she didn't know who was at her door. Breathless attempts by media to fan fictitious news flames are dangerous. My office is two doors down. Insurrectionists never stormed our hallway. Egregious doesn't even begin to cover it. Is there nothing MSM won't politicize? 
The target of the criticism is MSM, mainstream media. Guess what? Mainstream media, those outlets, others did in fact get it wrong. So far, so good. And by so good, I mean, I don't know how good it is. But anyway, OAN, the extra foxy Trumpist outlet, wrote up an article based on that tweet I just read you. And OAN falsely claimed that Mace and AOC were fighting. They weren't yet. But a few hours later, Fox, no doubt monitoring AON's feed and fearful of giving up an inch of coverage on the AOC is a monster beat, put out their own article featuring Nancy Mace's tweet, the one I just quoted. Nancy Mace was not quoted beyond that tweet, which was critical of the media, not AOC. But Fox headlined the story, squad leader on defense, two doors down Republican, blasts AOC, Capitol riot story, as other critics also raise questions. Like AON, Fox was wrong. Mace wasn't criticizing AOC, not directly. She was criticizing the coverage, the inaccurate coverage. Now, the next thing that happened was that the Nancy Mace campaign account retweeted the Fox story with the words, I'm two doors down from AOC and no insurrectionist stormed our hallway, which is a quote that she gave and just about the only quote that she gave, and it was taken from that tweet, that tweet I read. By the way, it was wrong for the Nancy Mace campaign or Nancy Mace herself, if she controls that account, to put out that tweet because the Fox story was inaccurate. But so far, Nancy Mace hasn't said one inaccurate thing. Although we got to say, retweeting an inaccurate Fox headline does not help anything, even if all Republicans want to be covered and covered fawningly by Fox. AOC then weighed in. She called this a deeply cynical and disgusting attack. Quote, while that at Nancy Mace is discrediting herself less than one month in office with such dishonest attacks, she went on record saying she barricaded in fear. Nancy Mace, who else's experience will you minimize? Capitol Police in Longworth, custodial workers who cleaned up shards of glass. In another tweet, AOC says, all I could think of with folks like her dishonestly claiming that survivors are exaggerating are these stories of veterans and survivors in my community who deny themselves care they need and deserve because they internalize voices like hers saying what they went through wasn't bad enough. And those are in quotes, although Mace never said that in a quote. Mace answered, AOC, hold up. You seem to be triggered by facts, so let me clear. It's not a nice thing to say. I have not once discounted your experience. It was harrowing for all of us. Fact, insurrectionists weren't in our hallways. It's your eagerness to politicize absolutely anything that deserves condemnation. AOC answered, I'm not discounting your experience. I'm just fact-checking statements you never made and insinuating you said them. Great job, Mace. Hope you're proud of how quickly... You are to throw other survivors under the bus for a moment of personal gain. Enjoy your Fox News hits. I gotta say, AOC is wrong there. Mace never insinuated that AOC said the things that Newsweek got wrong. AOC was inferring. Mace wasn't implying. Around the time of this exchange, Mace went on Fox, which is a sin to AOC, but a necessity to Mace, and said several times she did not discount AOC's experiences or perceptions as a survivor of sexual assault or a person who lived through that day. But it's clear that Mace is by now plenty pissed off at AOC. 
I initially you know, took to task the press for making these claims, taking these claims to apocalyptic levels, and, uh, and all I did was state the facts. I live in, in reality, I deal with facts and not fiction. And I said that there were no rioters in the hallways of Cannon, I'm two doors down from you. And, and she lost it today. She doesn't deal in reality, she hasn't been doing that today. I think it's really important that we take members to task when they're not being honest with the American people. This division is hurting our country. A lot of things to unpack here. If you're like me, you're losing the appetite to do the unpacking. Mace is mad at AOC, not for lying about her experience, but for lying about what Mace said about her experience. And I just sigh. Nancy Mace would make the world's worst social justice-oriented socialist. She'd make a very bad Democrat. And by not voting for impeachment, she doesn't make the ideal Republican. But you know what? She's pretty good. She's pretty sensible. She pretty bravely broke with Trump. And this entire contratem isn't laudable. There's nothing great about it. But she never actually literally said anything false. She is genuinely upset that AOC had a lot of criticism for the comportment of the Capitol Police officer who banged on her door. Mace is clearly disgusted by what she perceives as the hagiographic treatment that AOC gets. AOC has interpreted Mace's comments not by their exact meeting, but as implying that AOC is a liar. I can understand her frustration. There is very much a concerted effort on the right, on Fox, to brand AOC a liar. But she, we got to be clear, I always have been clear, she never said anything accurate about her experience that day in the Capitol. This is really all about the media. The incentives of each member of Congress to use social media to dunk on the other one and increase their standing. Furthermore, it was the media that stirred the shit. First AON and then Fox framing it as a fight before it was a fight until it became a fight. AOC was also manipulated by the media. Her original tweets were playing off a framing of mace provided by the left-wing outlet Raw Story. Aaron Rupar of Fox tweeted clips of Mace literally saying, I'm not criticizing AOC or discounting her experience, but Rupar said she was minimizing AOC's trauma. Rupar wrote an article in Vox saying, Nancy Mace's dishonest attack on AOC is part of a broader effort to downplay the January 6th insurrection. I played you all those quotes that Mace has said. She clearly takes the attacks very seriously. She just can't take the glowing and sometimes inaccurate attention her colleague receives. This is one of those spats that if either side had picked up the phone or met face-to-face at a distance, I don't think there'd be any trouble. Mace would explain, I have no problem with your perspective that day. You know as well as I do, media outlets get it wrong. AOC would say, well then, why'd you promote a Fox News story discounting my experiences? You give the impression you doubt me, and maybe they would work it out. Or maybe they wouldn't, but it would be a lot better than this public spat. Of course, neither side has any incentive to be anything but scorched earth with the other one. Bludgeoning AOC is practically required for Republicans these days is required as wearing a flag lapel pin. And AOC, the greatest practitioner of the social media arts, has no incentive for forgiveness or to see nuance in the position of a Republican. She's also been through this horrible disinformation campaign comparing her to Jussie Smollett on top of the trauma of the actual assault on the Capitol, on top of the trauma in her past. I'm very sympathetic, but, you know, calling Mace's tweets disgusting, cynical, and discrediting, and also calling them attacks on capital custodial workers and police workers. It's incendiary, but it's helpful to her in a very limited way. 
The whole thing is sad. And yes, both sides, maybe not equally, but certainly both sides aren't behaving in the manner that I would like to see members of Congress behave in. You may disagree, but if you do so, please don't do it on Fox News or Twitter. And that's it for today's show. Shana Roth produces the gist. She's confused by this. What is this, Flab the Impaler? Is that a Romanian count or a weight loss mechanism? Margaret Kelly, gist producer, retweeted a Daily Mail summary of an OAN tweet of a Fox News description of a Newsweek screenshot of another Daily Mail article. Pulitzer Committee, hello. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Given the popularity of Twitter, she's hoping a podcast version. Uh, the debut episode will have a remix of a reply-all quote from a What Next chopped and screwed version of a song sung on Today Explained. The Wikipedia of all that will be riffed on by the crime junkies. The gist. <laughs> I remember the days in Congress when Mervyn DeMalley could strongly imply that John Paul Hammerschmidt behaved in a manner unbecoming. We were all quite aghast. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>